seat. Welcome to Village Church. If this is your first time here, my name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here at Village Church. And as always, I'm thankful and grateful to see each and every one of you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be starting in verse 1 today. I'm very excited to start the book of Colossians with you today. Colossians is a book that is steeped in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In it and throughout its pages, Paul writes to a church that is in a culture that is predominantly Gentile, but still has a large community of Jews that had settled there. And so the church is filled with people from different backgrounds, with uh, differing cultures and different philosophies, but they also were surrounded by that reality to where there were pressures for these believers uh, to, to kind of equivocate on the gospel, to introduce false doctrine, accept false teaching in their lives, and also deal with the reality of being a Christian in a non-Christian culture every day of their lives. And so because of that, Paul sent them this letter to defend the purity of the gospel as well as to help them know what it is that they were going to be engaging the surrounding culture with and for. You know, one of the difficulties of discipleship is that there's a necessity to, for you to grow in what you believe, but also seek to apply it to every day of your life. But it also brings the extra responsibility that every believer has to spread the good news of Jesus Christ to the people in the culture around you. And in doing that, you will inevitably, inevitably, if I can speak, inevitably be encountering false doctrines in the culture where you're going to have to defend your faith against people that believe lies that have been taught to them sometimes from childhood. And so Paul sets the tone in the entire book, uh, really with the first eight verses of the text. And in it, he focuses on celebrating God's work in their lives through the gospel, but also focuses on the potential pitfalls that they're going to have in their discipleship, but also the potential that they will have if they stay faithful to the gospel as delivered through Jesus Christ and the teachings of the apostles. And so there's pressure in this church to mix with pagan philosophies and also pressure to kind of introduce aspects of the Mosaic law from uh, the Jews that were surrounding them as well. And they were trying to tell the Christians, you have Jesus, that's great, but you also need to be circumcised. You also need to practice the Jewish festivals. You also need to practice the Sabbath. You also uh, need to seek after the ceremonial aspects of the law in your lives. And so what I hope you see throughout the chapters of this book is that Paul instructs them with authority, but also urges them to keep pressing forward to grow in their faith and reject false doctrine. And so I want to begin reading in just the first two verses. Verse one says, Paul, that's who wrote it. Enough of that. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in the church at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now immediately what I hope you see is, is that Paul begins this letter much like he begins every letter with an introduction of himself. But included in that introduction, as well as in other letters that Paul wrote to New Testament churches, is the phrase that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus, but also that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And what really he's focusing on here and what he's going to deliver to them is, number one this morning, that Scripture is delivered in unparalleled authority. Scripture is delivered with unparalleled authority. 
When Paul speaks of the authority by which he gives that, he's not just telling them he's an apostle so that he can give them a resume so they will know who he is. No, rather, he's telling them of his apostleship. He's also telling them the source of his apostleship so that they will understand the authority by which he's going to deliver the words of this letter to them. He wants them to know that the source of the message is not him. The ultimate source of this message is God himself. This is not an unimportant thing. His apostleship is vital. I hope that you understand that this is not an office that exists in our era because it required both a personal encounter with the risen Jesus as well as a direct appointment from Christ to this office of authority. That is what Paul means when he states that he is an apostle by the will of God. And so if you meet anybody in our era that introduces themselves as an apostle, immediately you know that's a false teacher. Immediately, you know, that is someone that is not going to teach the truth of Scripture, but rather is going to teach you a host of lies because the office of apostles simply does not exist in our era because we cannot have the qualifications that people like Paul and the other apostles had. And so reject the teaching of anyone that identifies themselves as an apostle. This is also not a position that any of the apostles lobbied for, nor did they apply for this position as if it was a job that they could seek. In the book of 1 Timothy, Paul actually introduces himself in the subject matter by saying that his apostleship is by the command of Jesus. Why does that matter? Once we get into the sections of the book where Paul is actually fighting the specific, the specific false doctrines that he covers in this book, we must remember that he is not giving them his opinion about these matters. That Paul is not giving them an option that the church can then gather and vote on to see whose teaching they're actually going to follow. Paul is not looking at them and saying, this is a good option among many about how you are to view the truth of Jesus Christ. No, Paul introduces himself as an apostle by the will of God to let them know that what I say in this book is from God. And if you differ on what I teach in this book, not only are you wrong, but you are believing and propagating lies and you are rebelling against the God from whom this message is coming from. And so Paul is being very aggressive in the way that he is dealing with the false teaching of that day. And he is telling them that if they reject the words that he's sending in this letter to the church at Colossae, then they find themselves in opposition to God. And that is obviously sin. Anything contrary to what the apostle writes in this book is simply false. He introduces himself this way to wield the authority, and it is the very authority of God's word. That is what we have in Scripture. We don't have options for our belief. We don't have things that are good for our religious lives. We don't have little nuggets of inspiration for our souls so that we can be more spiritual. No, when we look at the 66 books of the Bible, we have objective truth. We have absolute authority for our lives. We have the sufficient word from God by which we can test every doctrine that exists in this world. And if it is found to not line up with Scripture, it is simply false. It is against God. The source of the Bible is God. In 1 Peter 2, excuse me, 1, 20, the Apostle Peter puts it this way. He says, knowing this first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. 
And so this isn't just a speech that Paul wrote and he's delivering to them and saying, hey, since I'm in charge, hey, since I have influence, hey, since I have more experience in Christianity than you have, hey, since I've made more disciples than you've made, all of that may have been true, but none of it has anything to do with why the words of the book of Colossians are true or why the words of any New Testament book are true or why the words of any Old Testament book are true. Paul is leveraging his position to tell them this is from the very inspiration of God. This carries the authority of God's word. This is what you need. This is sufficient. This is not my interpretation of what God says. This is what God says. And that is why when you come to God's word, your opinions ultimately don't matter. That is why when you come to God's word, your emotions don't come into play. That is why when you come to God's word, your opinions, your personality, your emotions, your feelings, your mental well-being, your IQ level, how smart you think you are, how dumb you think you are, how proficient you think you are, or how lacking you think you are, how much authority you think you have with people, or the lack of authority you assume you have with people. None of that factors into the word of God. All that factors into the word of God is that it is the authority of God in our lives. And anywhere where I do not measure up to the word of God, I must change. So if my opinion does not match this book, my opinion needs to change. But the more important factor for our context, if my emotions do not line up with scripture, my emotions must change. I was in a discipleship relationship many, many years ago, and I was speaking to a young man, and he told me, it's impossible for my personality to change, for me to become the man that God wants me to have. And I looked at him, and I said, that would be devastating if it were true. But so many of you think that your emotions can't change, your personality can't change, your feelings can't change. Friends, when, the, when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you received the power of the Holy Spirit, you have no idea the potential of change that you have. If God says it in His Word, that literally means not only can you change, but you must you must turn from your sin. You must align with the word of God or you are not being faithful to it. You are not giving it authority. The false teaching that is threatening this church is actually from the background of both the Greeks and the Jews that were in this church. The Greeks loved philosophy. And because of that, they thought that the gospel was too simple. If you ever talk to people who uh, love philosophy... Everything is too simple. They overcomplicate everything for you. And so the Greeks looked at it and said, oh, no, the gospel is too, too simple. So they were tempted towards a belief that since God is good and if God is separate from this world, then the physical world must necessarily be bad. And so anything material is bad. And so since material is bad and Jesus was a human being, well, then he couldn't have been God. But then they also thought the contradictory statement to that, that since Jesus was divine, he also couldn't be a human being since being a human is evil. Therefore, the result was that Jesus simply couldn't have been the Savior. And so we're looking to change the Christian message to match Greek philosophy. 
The other false teaching was from the Jewish element in the church, as I mentioned, and they thought you must be circumcised in order to really have the righteousness of Christ. And so they were looking at all of the Gentile men who were in the church at Colossae and saying, oh, you believe in Jesus? Fantastic. I've got a knife. Let's make this thing official. (laughs) All right, that's bad news, all right? I wouldn't join that church. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, all right? But they also wanted them to follow the dietary laws. They also wanted them to follow holy days such as the Sabbath, such as festivals, such as the new moon, in order for them to be able to say they were truly saved. And so what the Apostle Paul is doing is he's telling the Colossians, you must defend the gospel against both of these assaults on the gospel. He's giving them the very truth of God because he's an apostle by the will of God. And anything that would lead them in another direction is a lie and is to be arrested, excuse me, rejected. What's missing from so many in our era is the understanding the scripture is not a truth. So many of us treat it as though it is a truth. No, friends, don't reduce it to that. Scripture is the truth. It's not just true for you. Scripture is true for everyone, whether they believe it or not. It is binding. It has full authority to instruct us on everything. And so when we choose to mix any other teaching with it or choose something other than how Scripture leads us, then we are, in fact, in rebellion against God. Look at verse 3. He says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith... In Christ Jesus, and of the love that you have for all the saints. He tells us two very important things in those two, ver- in those two verses that you may just pass over very quickly and say, oh, that's a really nice introduction. Let's move on to the good stuff. No, he's giving you the good stuff right here. Number two this morning, understand what he's saying is salvation is a gift of God that demands a response of faith. Where do I get that? Never forget That salvation is a gift of God. Why is it important that in so many of Paul's letters, he begins by thanking God? Note that he doesn't begin the book by looking at the Colossian church and saying, I am thankful for you. That's not how he begins it. He says, I'm thanking God for you. He's not looking at them and saying, man, you're doing some great stuff. You're reaching so many people. You're making so many disciples. You guys are doing so well in your obedience to everything that the apostles have taught you to do. No, the apostle begins by thanking God because everything that is true about them at that point, everything that they have as a church together is rooted in God and is not rooted to themselves. In this verse, the apostle looks and he says, this is about the work of God for you. This is none about what you have to offer God. One of the overarching themes of the book that I hope that you see over the few chapters of it is that Jesus is enough. This is about the sufficiency of Christ, which is rooted in his lordship. That if he's going to be the Savior, he must be the Lord. But since he is the Lord, he can be the Savior. What he has done is enough. And so verses 3 and 4 contain the message of salvation. It's the very crux of the entire book as a whole. He thanks God, but then note what he adds. Who is God? He thanks God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says... I make mention of this when I'm praying for you. Note that everything that he says in that short phrase, 
returns to God and never goes away from God. He says, I thank God for you when I pray to God for you. Not only did the gospel begin their journey, but it was only God's strength that was going to persevere them on the journey. Why do we thank God? I'll tell you why. Because that is a worldview question. The only reason for which you would thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is if salvation is from His hand and you didn't do it. The gospel is not built on the activity of man. Rather, it is sourced from the hand of God. And the plan of salvation through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ in order to redeem sinners and reconcile them in relationship with God is 100% dependent on Him. If you'll remember, when we finished the book of Joshua A huge focus of the last two chapters of the book of Joshua was him looking at the nation and saying, hey, you can't hold up your end of the bargain. If this covenant is half God and half you, you're all sunk. This covenant can only depend on God because if it depends on you at all, you will sin. You will blow it. Seems to be what the Apostle Paul is telling us too. We thank God because it's all of God. It's 100% dependent on His hand. It's 0% dependent on the activity of man. It is a one-sided deal in which God does all the work and Christians get all of the benefits. That is why He doesn't begin thanking them since they've measured up to God's standard. They hadn't. Everyone that believes the gospel knows that we have not measured up. We, the only thing that I bring into the equation is the need for salvation. The only thing that you bring into the equation is that you haven't measured up, which makes you dependent on God to begin with. We bring the negative, God brings the positive, and He gets rid of the negative altogether. So where does this Thanksgiving naturally go for the Colossian church? It has to go to God. In Ephesians chapter 2, I think he's a little more theological and specific. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. This is not a result of works. Why? Because God doesn't want you boasting about it. God wants all the glory. He deserves all of the glory. He's the only one that measures up. Yet, it does bring an obligation, doesn't it? That's the second thing that he talks about there because he begins by thanking God. But then note that in verse 4, he says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. And so he says, it is you that has had faith. That is the obligation of the gospel on us. It is faith. God redeems us. He's the active participant. And at that moment, you are regenerated. That is what it means in Ephesians 2.10, which is the one that we often overlook, which is right after Ephesians 2.9. It's what it means when he says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's what it means to be created in Christ. It's what we mean by born again. This is the moment in which faith is even possible. I want you to note that the term that he uses in Colossians 1 there for faith is actually, it has a root term in it that literally means obey. 
The work of salvation, understand this, is completely done, accomplished by God. So all of your thanksgiving must be, be in Him. It must go to Him. The outcome of that salvation, by definition of the terms used here, is a new life of faith that points your obedience toward the work that God has done for you. And so the full meaning of faith, it realigns your life to confidently trust in the work that God has done for you, and then you live out that trust in your everyday life. How do we know that? Because of the next line. The next line gives a unique obligation to love other Christians. They're created in Christ Jesus at the moment of their redemption by God that changes them for them to walk into works that God prepared beforehand for them to walk into, Ephesians chapter 2 says. But then at the end of verse 4, he says, I've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. What is the obligation that the apostle lays at their feet? It's twofold. First, believe the gospel of Jesus. That's why it's good news is to be believed. That is ultimately how this obedience starts. It creates a confident trust, but then it obviously changes their lives because Paul immediately talks about a realignment of their commitments. And the realignment of their commitments here is specifically the love that they have for all the saints. He's using that as an identifier for gospel fruit in their lives of what has changed in them is now they have a unique obligation to love other Christians. This is a peculiar love that is not simply given to everyone. Note, he qualifies it. He says this is specifically towards the saints. So they believe the gospel and it forms a community around the gospel where they build a peculiar love that specifically can only go to other Christians and be received from other Christians. This is a foundation for the work ahead in the book of Colossians to note Paul is really starting this way by showing them the foundation of what it is that he's going to call them to protect later in the book. This is about faith and just how that faith functions in community and how it is formed in the church so that he can then move on later in the book to say that is the peculiar love that you have to protect from false doctrine. You cannot mix anything in with it. But then continue reading in verse 5. He talks about the love that you have for all of the saints. And then he says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of truth. Now note that he talks about truth and he kind of centers on that defining truth of what they are. And what he's saying really is number three this morning, the gospel is the standard of truth. The gospel is the standard of truth. The gospel is the anchor of truth on which they are going to build their very lives. 
So he goes to the love that they have for the church, but then note what that love is built on. It's not some single solitary thing that you can create an island of and say, we're all about love. No, he continues that thread of logic and he says, you love all of the saints because of the hope that you have. And that hope is not disconnected from objective reality. He says, because of the hope laid up for you where? In heaven. That's a peculiar type of hope, just like it's a peculiar type of love. It's a hope that can only be had by Christians. That hope is the basis for the entire Christian worldview. This hope is not a fairy tale. How do we know that? Because the apostle says specifically, the hope of heaven that you have is connected to the word of truth, the gospel. There in verse 5. Friends, our hope is not some mystical pie-in-the-sky thing that we don't have any basis to believe. No, the Apostle Paul anchors it down and he anchors it deep. And he says the love, the hope, the faith, the thanksgiving, all of it is anchored to what he calls the word of truth. And then he wants to be even more specific. He says that word of truth, do you know what it is? The gospel. Everything about the salvation in Jesus Christ is what you are building your, your life on. That is the core of the entire book of Colossians. And so if you want to know the hinge upon which Colossians swings, it's the word of truth, the gospel. He is building a case that they need to build their entire lives on that source of truth. The gospel then is the fundamental hope of every Christian that transforms living because it is the lens through which the entire world is seen. There's nothing that the gospel does not affect. It changes the way that I view myself. It changes the way that I view others. It changes the way that I view the church. It changes the way that I view God. It changes the way that I interact with everyone. It changes the way I view children. It changes the way I view my marriage. It changes everything about life, but only if it's the pure gospel. No, Paul is not simply randomly saying Christian words for feeling. I mean, sometimes we do that. Faith, hope, and love. But then you're hoping nobody asks you exactly what they are. Sometimes we just throw words out and we're like, peace, hope, faith, love, thanksgiving. But what the Apostle Paul is doing is something deeper than just saying these words. The Apostle is actually trying to build a foundation upon which all of them mean anything. And he's saying that disconnected from that foundation, if you take one of the chains off, thanksgiving isn't going to make sense without the gospel. Hope isn't going to make sense without the gospel. Faith certainly would make no sense without the gospel. The love that you have for other people isn't going to make sense without the gospel. You're not going to have any hope if you disconnect it from the word of truth. That is the qualification upon which it all rests. In Ephesians chapter 1 the apostle uses the same verbiage that he uses here in Colossians 1. He says, in Jesus, in him, you also, when you heard, here it is, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now Ephesians, especially Ephesians 1, has a particularly more theological scope than what his introduction here in Colossians chapter 1 is. 
And there he spells it out and connects the dots that you might miss here if you aren't paying attention to what he says. He's saying first, the gospel is from Christ. It is news that is heard because God accomplished it for all of us on the cross. It is the truthful good news of our salvation that we believe in faith. And then finally he says, God seals it and he seals us in it through the power of the Holy Spirit. When you make those connections, especially when you add that sealing aspect from the end there of verse 13, you form a worldview that is closed off. In other words, it's sealed by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if you add anything to it, it's going to pervert it. If you take anything away from it, it will reduce it, still perverting it and making it ineffective. He says, you've been sealed in this great gospel truth that God has delivered and you have believed. And therefore, it is perfect. It is holy. It is righteous. It is the pure gospel that you must anchor your life to and refuse to accept anyone that seeks to add to it or seeks to take away from it. It is perfect just the way it is. And if you seek to change any part of it, you will ruin the entire thing. But we are so tempted to believe that it's not sufficient. Because we don't feel sometimes like it's sufficient. We don't feel like it has done enough work. We don't feel like we have enough potential through faith. Our first year of marriage was interesting. Yours probably was too. You just won't admit it. And I was still trying to prove to my wife what I always knew, and that is that I'm the best husband ever. I mean, I knew it. I was just trying to prove it. And so sometimes I would put my chef's hat on and make her dinner. And sometimes she was thankful for it. But all of my recipes involve stovetop stuffing. I can't explain why. <laughs> but somehow that box made its way into everything I made our first year of marriage. But I looked at it and I said, it's not sufficient. I'm going to spice it up. And sometimes I would, you know, put a little meat in, put some spices in, put a little bit of this in, a little of that in. And the result, oh my goodness, it was great dinner. It was delicious. But I remember one particular occasion where I went a little crazy and she put a little in her mouth and then it went back on the plate and she said, let's order takeout. Now, I don't know if subconsciously that was my angle all along, because let me tell you, I didn't get this big by not eating takeout. I cried myself to sleep for a week. No, just kidding. I'm, I'm a man, so I literally just called and I forgot about it the next day. But I ruined what could have been a good dinner because I thought, in my opinion, I could add a little something to it and make it taste any better. And my Food Network show was canceled immediately. <laughs> but I think sometimes when we get accustomed 
to the truth of the gospel. Sometimes when we settle into the reality and the emotional high of being a Christian fades and we get kind of accustomed to the community and the life of the church and we start thinking about the gospel of Jesus Christ and we start looking at the world around us and all of the different influences that we allow to speak into our lives. I think for every one of us there are moments where we are tempted to believe the gospel would be just a little bit better if it did this for me. The gospel would be a little bit easier if I didn't have to change this part of my life for it, or if I didn't have to change this opinion, or if I didn't have to repent of this sin. And when we do that, we are adding to the recipe that God has already perfected. And I'm telling you, the outcome of it will never be good. The outcome of it is always a lesser gospel or the great danger is the outcome of it will not be the gospel at all. The fact that the gospel is a closed system that we don't add to nor do we take away from is good news. Because it means that God has made it righteous. God has made it holy. God has anchored it to truth. And we simply bring faith to the equation to believe that what God has done through Christ is already sufficient. Because the love that the apostle was talking about earlier only emerges from the truth. That's why I believe Paul's use of love in verse 4 is connected to what he's saying about the word of truth, the gospel in verse 5, because love only emerges from the truth. Friend, you cannot disconnect love from the foundation of truth and maintain its beauty, nor can you maintain its impact. You cannot redefine love to fit the culture around you. You cannot redefine it apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ and hope to love anybody at all. Because the fact of the Christian worldview tells us that the only reason we know what love is at all is because of what Jesus has done on the cross. It's superior to any other definition. And without Christ on the cross, you cannot hope to fully give anyone ultimate love in this life. According to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, which is a chapter filled with unraveling why the resurrection of Jesus Christ is necessary for salvation. He even writes, he says, if the resurrection is a lie in verses 3 through 4, he says we lost the whole thing because he states that the death and resurrection of Jesus are of what he calls first important. And that is what everything else is built upon. And so when Paul writes that all of this is the word of truth, he is pointing to the necessity that we have to protect the integrity of the objective reality that is the gospel of Jesus Christ and what it forms. And so just like scripture is not a truth, friends, the gospel is not a truth. The gospel is the truth. But here's where it goes deeper. The gospel is the standard of truth. The gospel is the lens through which you must know what life is about to begin with. And without the gospel, you can't have it. Friends, if you allow error and false doctrine to change the gospel, 
You've lost the very lens through which we can even know what truth is. Because if you don't have the gospel, you don't have God. And if you don't have God, you cannot know truth. Not in any ultimate sense of what truth means. This is so relevant to our times. Especially over the last few years. So many have sought to reshape how we view and how we apply the gospel to our lives. And they've introduced competing philosophies and false doctrine even into the life of the church. You may look at the book of Colossians and think it's going to be an easy time because you're like, well, I don't even know anything about Greek philosophy. So I'm not going to be tempted to alter the gospel with Greek philosophy at all. You may look at what the Judaizers tried to do with circumcision and you're like, I did that when I was a baby. Whew. You're like, I don't even know what Sabbath really is. Wasn't that Sunday? Maybe it's Saturday. I don't know. You might even say, I don't pay attention to the lunar calendar. So how can I use the new moon to pervert Christianity? You see, friends, the fact of the matter is those are the gods that they dealt with. But we must seek to say what false gods, what false doctrines are we dealing with? When I think about Greek philosophy... I think of the modern pagan philosophies like postmodernism that wants us to deconstruct our faith, to doubt even objectivity in the foundation of the gospel and preach redemption that is only possible by bringing down the systems of power that are called the hegemony and raising up the oppressed peoples against the power dynamics of my perceived whiteness. They say, Steve, if you want righteousness, you must divest of your whiteness. Friends, that's a false gospel. There are many that are even like the modern Judaizers. Sure, they're not telling you you have to be circumcised to attain righteousness, but they are telling you that you can only attain righteousness if you, by chance, become an ally to the marginalized LGBTQ plus community who want to groom your children. And if you are righteous, you won't just accept perversion in the culture, you will applaud it. And that is the only way by which you can attain righteousness in this world. Friends, if you think false doctrine can't pervert the gospel inside of the church, you haven't been paying attention to what's been happening to some trustworthy people who impacted our faith a decade ago but have very slowly become false teachers. The problem with some of us is that we only have a definition of false doctrine that involves the prosperity gospel. Yes, friends, the prosperity gospel is abominable. It's the doctrine of demons. But it is not the only false doctrine that we deal with. The rest are simply more subtle and have groomed us into a place where we're numb to them. You cannot love the saints, like verse 4 says, without fighting for the truth. It's required. But also understand, and we get a bonus round this week. I tried so hard to do it in three points. It just didn't work out. The gospel is not just the standard of truth. Number four, the gospel is the primary issue of life. It defines what we live for. Not only must be here, 
But the apostle speaks and he gives a vision that it goes out through my hands, it goes out through my feet, it goes out through my mouth. It affects the whole world around me as much as it affects the life that God is forming inside of me. Look back at verse 6. He says, this gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world is bearing fruit and is increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God. Here it is again. In truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made it known to us, here it is again, love in the Spirit. I love the vocabulary of these first eight verses. It is the gospel that brings increase in life. And nothing else brings increase quite like the gospel. And he really focuses just on two areas where he wants you to understand where the increase must happen for the gospel to be bearing fruit so that you can actually say, what is the gospel doing in my life? What is the gospel doing in this world? He anchors them to the truth of the gospel, but then points them to two places. And you can see them, I hope, very clearly. He points them to the inward work of the gospel and to the outward work of the gospel. That inward work, though, must be focused on no matter how difficult the changes you must make in your life are to measure the impact of the gospel. And so the question must be asked, has the gospel formed faith in you? Are you confidently trusting Jesus Christ to the very core of who you are? And has there been any real life change? Don't just look for the external behavior of your life. Friends, I will tell you the most important measure that you can have really of the inward change of the gospel is how's the gospel affecting your emotions? And how is the gospel affecting your thoughts? What's the inward life? Like, where is it that you are searching for significance in your life? What is it that makes you feel worthy of life? And I will tell you the only thing that hasn't disappointed me is I am worthy because Jesus Christ made me worthy. And it never fades. Never lose sight, though, that that inward work must become outward. It must affect the very actions and activity of your life. The gospel is the primary mission of your life as well. You are not the ends of what God wants to do. Not only does he want to do work in you, he wants to do work through you. And he wants it. Note that he says it's affecting the whole world. And it's increasing in the whole world. Friends, we get so distracted sometimes by other issues. And sometimes we lose sight of the core of just what the gospel is. And this is easy to do. By tonight, I guarantee it, some new issue has come up in the world. And by tonight, it will be the most important issue of my lifetime. And I didn't even know it existed 15 minutes ago. (laughs) And so someone's going to try to convince you today, this thing you never even knew about 15 minutes ago is going to bring such mass destruction that you must reorient everything about yourself, everything about your life, everything about your faith. And if you don't, are you really a Christian? Do you even care? And you're just like, let me catch up. I didn't even know it existed yesterday. 
That's what happens when we get our eyes off of the purity of the gospel. In almost every instance, they become distractions from the core of what will actually change lives and what will actually make disciples of Jesus. I love how the Apostle Paul put it to the church at Corinth. And I want you to understand the church at Corinth was a church that had real problems. And part of the problem was they took their eyes off of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 2, Paul says, When I came to you, brothers did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or opinion. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now don't hear me say that nothing outside of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, uh, that the things outside of that don't matter, because they absolutely do. The Scripture is much larger than that. But here's what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's saying, I can focus on everything else with you, and if I don't have the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ... It's all been for naught. He says, that is the necessary aspect of everything that we do. In 1 John 5, 4, the Apostle John also makes a bold statement. He says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Think about that. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Friends, if God has saved you, then guess what? You have been born again. If you have been born again, then here's the amazing vision of 1 John. You have overcome the world. And what did you do? Well, you just trusted Jesus. That's it. That's the purity of the gospel. That's what Paul is defending. That is what he is fighting for. And don't worry, this is not some pious reality where all that I worry about is the spiritual aspect of the gospel. No, what I mean to tell you is that when you view yourself and others through the lens of the gospel, everything changes. The way that I think about myself changes. The way that I think about you changes. The way that I think about my neighborhood changes. The way that I think about the church changes. The way that I think about my local government changes. The way that I think about the national government changes. The way that I think about my country changes. And the way that I think about the world changes. There is nothing that the word of truth the gospel does not impact and change greatly. So the question is, what is distracting you from that? What is tempting you to think that isn't enough? What else do you need to add to that for you to have a satisfactory salvation? Paul is inviting the church at Colossae to build their lives on the pure truth of the gospel of Jesus. Nothing should be added and no substitute should be accepted because Jesus and Jesus alone is Lord of all. A few application points this morning. Filter everything through the authority of Scripture. If it does not measure up to Scripture, it is not true. Secondly, Obey God by being confident in Jesus. That is faith. That is faith. <laughs> Thirdly, measure every philosophy through the gospel. Everything. Do not so quickly accept every ideal that comes down the pipe. Measure it through the gospel. And then finally, order your life to increase gospel fruit inside of you 
but then also through you to the outside of you.